Hello there and welcome to this episode of Thinking Commercially, the business and commercial awareness podcast with me, Ben Triggs, and the wonderful Chris Stokes. In this episode, we cover big company profits and how they receive funding, big tech, their dip in profits, and hiring freezes most recently, the changing nature of business, and how the FTSE 100 has evolved. And finally, we look at some of the more comical advertising blunders in business. All of this and more in this episode. Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Ben. Looking forward to this edition of the podcast very much indeed. Absolutely. We are back for 2023 with another episode of Thinking Commercially. We're going to be covering uh, three different stories and looking really at themes of business, looking at some really good case studies to support you, not just with your understanding, but also any upcoming interviews or even if you're starting in the working world. Um, A lot of people will have resolutions around getting uh, more commercially aware uh, in 2023. And hopefully uh, this is the perfect place um, to do it. Um, But if that is your resolution or you want to do some extra reading, there are two books uh, written both by Chris and they are absolutely amazing, um, all covering commercial awareness and how the city works. Um, You can find both of these on Amazon and Chris, like I think, um, what I think about them when I think about your books, read them both, is it's making the sort of the complex stuff uh, easier. I actually think there's a quote to that nature on the front of um, one of them. But what are you sort of trying to do uh, in those books for for graduates and for university students? It, it's exactly that, Ben. It's exploding the myth that you can only understand these things if you understand the complexity behind them. Um, And and it comes from my journalistic days as a financial journalist rather than from my days as a lawyer when I got the chance to interview very clever people in the financial and corporate worlds. And I discovered that the really clever people are able to explain complex things really simply. So in a sense, those two books, the the city one is on the financial markets, the commercial awareness one is is on the workings of the commercial world. And, And if if you read the the two, that will give you a really good introduction into the sort of things that that we cover on the podcast. Because the aim is to um, simplify these things so you can understand them, and then after that, once you understand the basics, you can build on that platform of knowledge. But it's just to it, the 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 principal aim is to stop you being intimidated by these things. Perfect. And I know he is on the podcast and uh, sitting uh, in front of me on uh, on Zoom where we're recording this. Uh, but I genuinely, genuinely uh, believe that these are the best business books out there, especially for students. There are a lot of uh, great stories, a lot of great autobiographies that you can read. But in terms of understanding and getting that core knowledge, there are none better. So highly recommend them. We have some stories to cover. So if you're ready, Chris, should we get going? Absolutely. So the first thing that we're going to cover on this episode of Thinking Commercially is all about how companies make money, how they receive money through funding, how they manage their cash flows. Um, But to give you a really good idea of, in practice, how businesses operate and how they work. Um, Ultimately, there are stories all the time around uh, 
profits, uh, profit margins, um, the earnings of a, a particular company over a quarter or a financial financial year. Um, but hopefully we can dissect a lot of that kind of information that can be thrown at you if you read the Financial Times or BBC Business or whatever, uh, wherever you get your kind of financial news. And actually go back a step and really look at the core ideas around business and what it's trying to achieve. Um, Chris, the first starting point I have, and I don't want this to turn too much into a GCSE business uh, lesson here, um, but the goal of companies ultimately is to make profit, or at least private companies is to is to make profit. When we look at profit or the market looks at profit, it's looking at so much, whether it's net profit, gross profit, operating profit, or even EBITDA. What is the market looking at? And what are the key things that people should be looking at when they're doing research or, on a company? Well, I, I think the first thing, this goes back to what we were saying about about the, those two books of mine. The first thing is not to be intimidated by by this stuff. And I'm I'm a lawyer, and lawyers are not especially numerate. But for me, it was it was actually an accountant who said to me that non-accountants tend to think of accounts as being very scientific, but actually they're they're not. Uh, there is a thing called creative accounting, and sometimes people use that pejoratively. But actually, there's a there's a lot in that because what accounts are trying to do is to get a picture of something that is a kind of living, changing thing, which is what a public or private company is. And so you need to look at different types of profit to see the different angles of the of the business. And I, I'm just going to mention a, a couple to, to get you started, as it were. So people sometimes talk about gross profit. Gross profit is simply the money that you get from selling something less the cost of producing it. So let's say I'm, I'm, I've, I'm, I'm a bicycle barista. I've got a bike and I've got a little espresso machine on the back of it. My gross profit is the amount of money I get per cup of coffee, less the cost of the coffee beans and the milk and the cost of the, of the cup. So that, that's gross profit. But of course, that doesn't reflect the other costs associated with being in business. So although that's gross profit, people then talk about net profit. Net profit is once you factor in, in, in all of these other things. So for example, um, I've got to get my bike maintained by taking it to the bike shop. That eats into the gross profit. I've put an advert in the local paper saying that I'll be outside the railway station every morning. That cuts into my gross profit. And once you've taken those costs of doing business into account, that gives you net profit. So that's the difference between gross profit and, and net profit. And then you mentioned EBITDA, which is that stands for earnings before interest, tax, depreciation and amortization. And the idea there, and I know we're going to get onto cash flow in a minute, Ben, but the EBITDA is much closer to looking at the cash as it goes through a company. The interest obviously is, is interest on any loans a business has, the taxes, the tax it pays on profit. But the DNA, D is depreciation, uh, and amortization is the writing off of loans. So depreciation with my bike, I'm going to have to replace my bike in five to 10 years time. So depreciation is a way of lopping off this year's profits 
the money that I have to put aside to replace that bike in five or 10 years time. And amortization is the same for the debt, that if you take on a loan, you pay it off over five years, each year you kind of slice it to see how much of that debt applies to it to each year. And those two things, depreciation and amortization, they're known as non-cash charges because they don't actually affect the money that you've got in your hand, but they, they do affect the way accountants look at it because accountants produce numbers that reflect the overall state of, of the business. And once you've taken all of that into account, gross profit, net profit, depreciation, amortization, all of that produces something called taxable profit on which you pay tax. And it's only after you've paid the tax that you've got the pure profit left over, which you can either reinvest in the business uh, and or hand out to shareholders. That is a, a really good summary of, uh, of everything that's being uh, looked at. When you look at profit, and regardless of which type of profit we're we're looking at here, um, ultimately the business wants to maximise profit. And actually, consultants, uh, consulting a very popular sector for for graduates, often their role is to work with a company to uh, try and maximise uh, profit, and create efficiencies. Um, so, if a consultant is going into into a business, what broad things or themes are they looking for or what sort of ideas or thoughts are they going to be sharing with the business to ensure that they're maximizing profit well again i think the important thing is to keep these things really simple so when a business first starts up profit is not its priority it just needs to stay in business but once you're a big business you've been around for a number of years then the way you're judged is is on your profitability how much profit you you produce to pay to shareholders who are invested in the business and also to reinvest in the business itself to expand it and so in a sense businesses are looking for return on investment roi but essentially if i'm a management consultant going into a business there are only two things that a business can do to get better. It can either increase sales and cut costs or both. So increasing sales is a function of strategy. Which markets are you in? How are you appealing to your customer base? So that answers the question, how can we grow? And cutting costs, as you said, Ben, is a function of efficiency. And that question is, how can we get better at what we do? So essentially, I think management consultants are answering a couple of big questions. How can we grow and how can we get better at what we do? And that's what it boils down to. Chris, you spoke a, about uh, cash flow. Um, I was reading the other day that about 50,000 businesses in the UK uh, each year fail because a lack of cash or cash flow problems. Why is it so difficult for companies to manage their cash flow? The first thing I would say is that it took me a long time to understand the importance of cash flow in a business. It's actually only when I started up a small business of my own that I realized how important cash flow is. Because if if when you open the metaphorical till of the business and you look in the till and there is no money there, you can't pay your electricity bill. You can't pay your rent. You, know, you, you can't pay your rates. So you need to have cash there. And if you've got no cash, effectively you'll bust because you can't pay the immediate bills. Um, how does this happen? Well, um, even if you're in an, an established business, and this has happened to a number of businesses recently, 
that they they could see last year that because all of the shocks that were affecting the global economy, supply chains were under threat, and a number of businesses took the precaution of investing a lot in stock. So they built up a lot of inventory, but that was at the expense of the amount of cash they had in the business. Because if you've got inventory, stuff that you've made that hasn't been sold, that's not yet been turned into cash. And if you take too long to get paid, then you may have on the face of it a very profitable business. When you do get paid, you're making a lot of profit. But if the money is not coming in quickly enough, you open the till, there's nothing there, you can't pay your your, your immediate bills. And it's quite interesting this. Um, within every business, within the account, the the, the kind of the, the finance function, there are people whose job it is to manage the cash flow. And even in the biggest businesses, those people will be talking to the bank several times a day to see what the daily cash flow position of the business is. So it's hugely important, no matter how small or big a business you are, it's something that you really have to watch out for. Um, final thing chris for for myself on on this uh topic and more broadly and it probably yeah broadens out a little bit there's a lot of talk at the moment around uh an economic downturn um actually really sh strange headlines uh a couple of weeks ago suggesting that everyone was very surprised that britain wasn't in a recession when we grew i think 0.1 uh, percent uh in the previous quarter but even so not really seeing much growth uh at the moment at all um if uh, an economic downturn is coming what are the big ceos thinking about well pretty well everything that we've already covered so there'll be um an economic downturn means that you've got fewer customers um, and they are less prepared to pay the price that you want for your goods or services. And exactly as you illustrated, Ben, they're, they're less able to actually pay for them when they get those goods or services. So everything in a business gets stretched. You've got fewer sales. Your cost of production are going up. The cash is taking longer to come in. So in those circumstances, you're, you're kind of stress testing the business. You, 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 you want to make sure that at every part of the business, it's strong enough to withstand the pressure. I mean, my, my immediate image is of a submarine. So if you're a submarine that is having to dive deeper because of the storm raging up above uh, on the surface of the sea, which is the state of the economy, if you're diving deeper, the pressure on the hull intensifies and so as the ceo i'm i'm walking around the interior of that submarine making sure that all of the nuts and bolts are really tight so that it won't spring a leak anywhere really interesting really good uh, analogy there chris so yeah thank you so much for that one um we're gonna leave that story uh there um two things before we do uh first of all um after you've read Chris's books, uh, I recommend reading uh, Shoe Dog, which is uh, by the founder of uh, Nike. Uh, a lot of his book is around uh, cash flow uh, and the importance to business. So really good if you're interested to find out more. Uh, the second uh, thing uh, 
that I would look at. There's a website called Visual Capitalist. I don't know a huge amount uh, uh, about it apart from that they do great graphics of where big businesses' profits come from and how it splits down by operating profit, net profit, uh, and things like that. So if you want to see a nice visual graph of uh, everything going, like, say, Amazon or or Apple's profits or, or something like that, um, it really helps you uh, visualize uh, how, how uh, profits work. The second story this week really follows on from what we've just spoken about in the first story and actually talks about something which is happening live at the moment and something that I'm sure you would have been seeing in the media. A lot of uh, big tech companies and also the big tech scale-ups that we uh, spoke about in the previous story um, have been seeing a dip in profits their outlook is looking less rosy looking more problematic and there are enforced hiring freezes across some of those businesses and even um, potentially laying off staff to become more efficient to become more streamlined um, and to, uh, to, to to aim to sort of steady the ship make uh, more profit uh, into into the future and uh, maintain their sustainability uh, as 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 a business um the big example at the end of last year was uh, twitter which to be honest is a fairly unique case because uh, obviously they had a new owner on elon musk and uh, had some fairly uh, interesting ideas on how things were going to work at twitter however even though that gained a lot of publicity uh, you might have uh, read that spotify uh, are talking about cutting six uh, percent of its workforce amazon putting a hiring freeze and also cutting some of its workforce and meta um, as well if you can remember and actually we would have been talking about it in 2021 even early 2022 uh big tech was just going through the roof profits and never been higher the market cap of the big five tech companies was uh just insane it was a ludicrously big number i think they made uh in 2021 between those uh big five they made 1.4 trillion uh in revenues and that um went into uh, $320 billion of profits across just five of the, the, the big companies, which is, which is mad. However, that hasn't continued uh, into the end of 2022 and now at the start of 2023. Um, and also there are big startups, something like uh, Gorilla, for instance, the food delivery service was really hot at the start of 2022 and again lost its shine. They started making some redundancies. Um, also companies in fashion tech as well, um, potentially making uh, a few redundancies. Hiring freeze is not growing as quick. So it does feel like this is across the tech sector and uh, regardless of the sector, whether it's food delivery, whether it's fashion, whether it's uh, music, um, it feels like uh, the shine has been taken off the sector ever so slightly. So, Chris, it's a big question, but what is going on in the tech sector at the moment? What's your view on it? Um, well, I, I think it's a, a, a number of things. I mean, one, one we, we were talking just now about um, businesses that grow. Um, in, in a sense, all of these businesses are now beginning to mature. A lot of them are still led by their founders. And these are entrepreneurs who, who may only have you know one or two good ideas. I mean, if you have a great idea as an entrepreneur, 
and you can build it into a multi-billion business, you've done fantastically well. But I think the nature of these these, um, founder entrepreneurs is they're trying to find other areas to innovate, and that costs a lot of money. And investors have become aware of this because what we're talking about here, again, using the terminology we just mentioned, is these have always been growth stocks where investors were not looking at profitability primarily. They were looking at the network effect, the market dominance. And because there's been a change in the global economy with interest rates going up, that actually has a knock-on effect on the valuation of growth companies because future revenues become less valuable because you get more money now because interest rates have gone up by putting that money on deposit at at the bank. So investors have started to look at these growth companies and say, oh, are they really worth what we thought they were and what the market has thought they were worth? And so that combination means that these businesses that so far have been fairly unconstrained are now having to function more like traditional businesses where you have to manage your costs. And, and that's what they're having to do. Interesting. One thing that maybe doesn't have any business sense, but in my head feels logical. So it's probably going to sound very stupid to everyone at home. So forgive me uh, for that. Um, But let's say over time, these tech companies, they're continuously growing and they saw close to hyper growth in in the pandemic. Um, Do you think that maybe because of the overinflation of their growth, because of an event, it was never going to continue when we got back in in person and actually maybe some tech companies and the markets have been caught off about how much we wanted to get back in in person as well i i think there's a lot in that because there are individual businesses that did well during the pandemic i mean zoom for example netflix peloton video game developers and all of those their 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 stock values have suffered since the end of the pandemic. That that was, in a sense, a predictable. But I, I think the, the knock-on effect has been that investors have started to look more broadly at these companies that are essentially about connectivity and begun to question whether, you know, long-term they, they could uh, remain such great investments. Because if you think about it, you know, take Apple, that's about constant connectivity to the internet in your pocket. Facebook, now Meta, that's about the ability to socialize online. Google, now Alphabet, that's about making online information accessible. And Amazon is about buying stuff. And in actual fact, if you look at Amazon, the the, the real tech bit of Amazon that is, is doing well is, is AWS. And in fact, where its costs have really uh, uh, ballooned is very much in the delivery of things ordered online it's that last mile fulfillment which is not particularly tech enabled so i i think you're absolutely right i I think um the the return to a greater degree of normality post-pandemic has itself been a factor in all of this yes yeah it's uh it's i think one thing i want to come back to on on what you said uh earlier in the conversation is around big tech companies uh, maybe diversifying is might be uh maybe too strong a word it's still obviously in the tech sector but they are uh, looking for new ideas and often uh buying uh, other companies that are seeing signs of growth 
or are in a particular area which maybe the company isn't a specialist uh, at at the moment, whether it be uh, VR or gaming or uh, electronic vehicles, um, all of these uh, all of these big companies seem to want to have uh, uh, a little bit of uh, involvement in all of these, just in case it turns out to be the next big thing. Um, is that a positive thing for innovation that these big tech companies are buying up lots of little companies in different areas of tech? Yes, I think it is. In, in, in fact, the one tech company I haven't mentioned so far is Microsoft. It's been around of the big ones for the longest. And people actually don't even particularly think of it as being that techy because Microsoft, in, in the words of Bill Gates, put a, um, a, a PC uh, in every home. And interestingly, after Microsoft did so well out of Windows, out of operating systems, it tried and failed to emulate the ones that I've mentioned. So it produced a, a Windows Phone 7 that failed to compete with, with Apple. Um, it was trying to move into the on, online social media space. So it bought LinkedIn, but that's used not so much for socializing, that's used for business. And then, like Google, it tried to develop a search function through Bing. None of these worked. But interestingly, everybody's now heard of chat GPT. And of those big tech businesses, the one that invested in OpenAI, which created chat GPT, is Microsoft in 2019. It invested a billion dollars in it. And this, I think, touches again on on innovation that interestingly from a, a kind of a academic point of view nobody's really been able to work out what innovation really is how how can you bottle what innovation is uh, there have been a lot of academic papers a, a, about it and ultimately i think what microsoft have shown is that you need to sprinkle money uh, across a, a, a very broad if you like frontage and just hope that something is going to work and above all you've got to be prepared to keep on doing it it's that perseverance and actually the most successful businesses are simply the ones that persevere they just keep going and so one can one can talk a lot about innovation and bright ideas but often the businesses that are still around are those that have just simply kept going and going back to what we were saying at the outset, increase their customer base and increase their efficiency of production. We touched on it earlier that investment isn't quite as forthcoming as it has been even a year or two ago as we were sort of coming out of the, the lockdowns and the pandemic. There's obviously elements of the economic climate worries about the uh, future. Such a difficult question to to ask for us, but if you were to look at 2023, uh, investing in big tech companies, do you think we're seeing a year where uh, investment is harder to come by? People are going to be slightly less bullish uh, with their investing of these sort of high growth scale up businesses? Well, um, um, undoubtedly, interest rates have had a big impact because uh, money, debt, just isn't as cheap as as it used to be. But um, there is a huge amount of pent up 
equity capital, private equity out there. I'm always amazed at how much investable money there is in the world. And I think we might be a- approaching a kind of pivot point where you know, the easy wins, smart devices, online retailing, subscription streaming services, even satellite rocket launching, you know, these things may have come and gone, but there are still really serious issues to be addressed, like climate change, energy diversification, uh, consumption, efficient transport. Um, and technology is going to have a role to play in all of these. So I, I don't think investors are less bullish. They may be just more discerning, and the investment landscape may have grown up a bit. Um, and it may well be that, you know, the big names like Elon Musk and, and Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, um, maybe they're a passing generation. But no, I think there will be more uh, entrepreneur innovators to come and more innovations to come, but they may be of a kind of more serious nature rather than the sort of things we've had so far, which have, they've had a direct impact impact on our lives as consumers, but maybe haven't changed the world around us as much as these innovations to come, I think will do. It's a really exciting prospect and very necessary in a lot of those areas, especially around uh, climate as well. We'll leave that story there for this time. For the third story of this episode, we're going to be talking about 1984. And we don't mean the best-selling book by George Orwell. Uh, We are talking about the year that the FTSE 100 was founded. Um, What we want to cover in this story is around the changing nature of business. And more specifically, is around how the big companies in the UK, or those listed on the FTSE 100, uh, have changed so much in the last 40 or so years. So the the stat that starts this off is that only 28% of businesses who entered the FTSE 100 back in 1984 are there today. And what we're going to look at is the role that innovation plays. We already covered it a little bit in the tech story, um, but really interested to delve a little bit deeper into this but before we start i think we probably need to understand and chris uh, you're the perfect person to be talking about this is what is the FTSE 100 who decides who's on the list of the top 100 companies um and i guess why also uh, companies choose to list publicly in the in the uk well, uh, first of all, FTSE, which is um, FTSE. Uh, FTSE is the Financial Times Stock Exchange list of the 100 uh, largest companies by market capitalization. In other words, by what the market values them at. But the FTSE 100, because it is the largest uh, UK listed companies, it's regarded as a kind of bellwether for the economy. And, and one of the complaints made about the FTSE traditionally, is that the companies in it are all fairly long in the tooth. You know, they're they're not particularly exciting or desirable businesses. They're they're oil companies, they're defense contractors, they're tobacco companies. They're they're companies that that grind out profit uh, year in, year out, but without being terribly uh, progressive in, in outlook. And funny enough, over the last year, 
when the sort of growth companies we've been talking about, the really exciting tech companies, have done less well in stock market terms, the FTSE 100 is one of the best performing indices around the world. And yet, when you look at the companies in it, you'd be hard pressed to say that that you know any of them were particularly groundbreaking. Interesting. Very good to to hear that. So. As we discussed, and probably slightly counter to uh, what, what what you're suggesting around that maybe businesses businesses that have been there for a while stayed there, they're not particularly innovative. But as I say, the stat that we talked about, like a lot of businesses that first were on the FTSE 100 have fallen away, and others have has have kind of replaced them. Why do you think that is? Is it a case of businesses, especially when they get to a certain size, struggle to adapt they're not as quick to adapt it's easier to lose their way almost that idea that um it's a this kind of common phrase that it's a lot easier to get to the top than stay there absolutely you see i i see it from completely the opposite way i i don't see it in terms of you know a big company why doesn't it stay around for 40 or 50 years at a time i I see it in terms of companies that have been around for that long are really quite extraordinary. And I, I I remember looking at the FTSE 100 a while ago and working out very roughly over a 10-year period, um, 40 to 50% of it, almost half of it, those companies that were there 10 years ago are no longer there. They've either dropped out of it because they've shrunk or they've been taken over by other companies. And that in its sense, that sense of regeneration I think is a, a really a really good thing. So if a company becomes less innovative, it shrinks, its markets shrink, it may be taken over because another bigger company may feel that it's still got things that that other uh, bigger company could can do something with. And that, as as we were talking about earlier, innovation is actually really, really difficult and nobody really knows how to do it. So although I've been quite critical of FTSE 100 companies, the fact is they've they've stayed there because behind the facade they have been innovative i bet you if you went into any of those big businesses and you had a look at them as they are today and compared that to 10 or 15 years ago internally they would have changed completely they may have the same name they may occupy the same headquarter offices they may appear to have the same factories, but what they actually do within the organization will be completely different. And, and that's why businesses, in order to remain where they are, they have to they have to change all the time. It can be very tiring being in an organization which is subject to constant change, but that's something that they have to be a, 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 attuned to doing if they are to survive. What I want to look at now is maybe what we can learn from businesses as individuals and maybe people that do set up businesses themselves from those that fell away rapidly. And there are hundreds, thousands examples of these sorts of businesses. But I think the one that springs to mind over the last 20, 25 years or so is Nokia. Uh, So the... uh, phone maker you may have not had a Nokia me and Chris before the podcast were talking about potentially if you're at university now uh, your first phone possibly could have been an iPhone or or equivalent maybe a Blackberry possibly um but possibly you missed the days where uh, Nokia were very much 
very much dominating the mobile phone industry. Um, you would have seen sort of the memes about how you can't destroy Nokia phones, the 3310, how they battery lasted for six six days or something something ridiculous uh, like that. It wasn't a myth. Those genuinely did happen. They may not have quite had the functionality of uh, the iPhone, but they, uh, in terms of battery life, could last, last a fair while. Um, but at around sort of 2007, um, half of the phones sold in the UK were Nokia phones. Uh, they had gone from the mid 90s where mobile phones were coming more more, more widespread um, and their value had just gone through the roof. They continued to grow and grow and grow. However, um, at the back end of the 2000s, uh, the iPhone comes in um, and all of a sudden they are playing catch up. Um, and about five or six years later, uh, they've lost 90% of their value. And um, even today, I'm sure you potentially could buy a Nokia, but um, does anyone buy a Nokia anymore? I'm, I'm not even sure if you, if you can or not. Um, but ultimately, they went from being the predominant market player. And 10 years later, they were basically wiped off uh, the face of the mobile phone industry. I know you've we've spoken about this before, Chris, but what can we learn from stories like that where a company goes from being dominant or close to dominant to very quickly losing all of their standing in an industry? Well, well sometimes companies that are incredibly successful just become complacent. Um, they become too set in their ways. Um, they end up being one product companies. I mean, We've been talking in this episode about um, uh, startups and scale-ups, and those businesses are very nimble in terms of uh, their ideas. But older businesses have got the advantages of cash flow and structure, and often they've got brand reputation, which should enable them to pivot. But often if they become supremely and unsuccessfully successful, that in its own way, tends to channel them down a particular route of trying to maximize profit without necessarily thinking that this is not going to last. And so for me, what I find interesting about these business case studies of businesses that have done well and then have fallen away, I think ultimately it's what it says about strategy. And, and there's an awful lot of junk that's written about strategy. Uh, strategy is just having a plan. But then people think that strategy is about having a plan that establishes priorities and it doesn't change. Whereas actually the academic writing suggests that what strategy is really about is being constantly aware of the changing environment around you and seeing how that will affect what you do internally, how that will affect your customers, how it will affect what they want, how therefore that will affect the products and services that, that that you might provide to the market. And you need to be doing this on an ongoing basis. You need to be um, analyzing and interrogating the external environment on an ongoing basis, not just once every so often. So I think actually one of the reasons why these, these big one product businesses fell away was because their own grasp of what strategy actually is was probably quite old-fashioned. There's a lot written about Nokia, as you can imagine, being such a, a case study of a business that kind of fell off a cliff. 
Um, and as, as I say, feel free to Google it. We'll post some on the socials uh, as well. Um, but there was that feeling of kind of poor management or maybe even a poor company culture uh, that led to its demise. Kind of the internal politics kind of meant that because they were so superior for so many years, they stopped challenging things. They stopped empowering their workforce to challenge things. So when things were looking like they were behind in the market, instead of people pulling up their socks going, right, we need a change of strategy, people just sort of drifted along with it because you can't question uh, the Nokia bosses. Look how successful they've been. You can't question them. Whereas actually a good culture allows people to go like, right, how do we improve? Everyone in the organization is looking to drive it forward and willing to have the difficult conversations uh, if things aren't going well. And I think one thing, their operating system was evidently worse than uh, iPhones. Uh, and ultimately, instead of uh, taking the steps to try and improve on it, uh, they sort of drifted. They didn't improve. They didn't have the difficult conversations. And I think it is an example of a company getting too big and resting on its laurels and the senior management believing that maybe you know they're god's gift that they uh they can do anything and because it's nokia it will uh it will always work and it's quite an interesting example and i think i definitely recommend reading all of those papers uh because uh as i say if you're thinking about business and what makes uh, a team tick and a lot of you will you know very very soon be be managers if you're a graduate often on a management graduate scheme or even if you uh, move quickly in your career, off you, you'll start managing people fairly quickly. Um, it's really good advice or really good to look at to really start building positive teams that can contribute and everyone can feel kind of part of those teams and driving, uh, driving them forward. Ben, I absolutely agree. I, I think what it shows is that, funny enough, the, the bigger and more successful a business, the harder it is within that business to get it to embrace change because it's been successful. It's probably ossified. It's set in its ways. So that's why from the outside, a business may look incredibly successful and really big, but on the inside, because it's not changing, it's kind of dying. And, and there's an analogy with, with us in our own careers, because once you get established in your career, uh, you know, you're in your 30s and 40s, you've got a family, you've got the house. It's very easy to begin to coast. Whereas actually what you need to be doing is all the time thinking about what is my relevance to my market? Am I improving my know-how? Am I improving my expertise and skills? Am I making myself more valuable as an employee? Yeah, on this, actually, Chris, I think there is something quite important, maybe bring it back to graduate career. So we've talked a lot about scale up business. We've talked about the big uh, corporates. I think approximately, um, from my knowledge through through Bright Network, approximately there are about 100,000 graduate scheme positions. So, you know, graduate scheme positions with larger, typically blue chip uh, companies. Um, about three quarters of a million graduates come out of UK universities each year. Obviously, some of them continue on to further study and do something different. Um, but so there are 
a lot of people going to get roles either in sort of SMEs, small to medium sized businesses or kind of scale ups. And I think a lot of students, especially entrepreneurial students, uh, are more and more looking for those kind of like smaller but scaling businesses that have growth, often a good opportunity to have a little bit more autonomy, possibly uh, have a bit more impact, also possibly grow quicker in the role especially if the business does well you can find yourself we talked about a little bit earlier about managing people a bit quicker um chris it's so hard to uh put this into a minute or two answer but what should graduates be thinking about when making that decision between i guess big blue chip company graduate scheme smaller business potentially scaling um or even doing something themselves well, uh, to tell you the truth, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I mean, uh, we've been talking about strategy and big businesses. I wouldn't worry too much about whether the business I'm joining is going to be around for long. I would worry more about, is it going to provide me with the training and opportunities that, that I want? Um, that doesn't mean to say that you can completely ignore strategy. I mean, I think it's really useful to have some insight into the apparent strategy of a business that you want to join, you know, just from looking at the website and maybe reading its annual report, just so you can talk about it knowledgeably at an interview. And I think once you're in the workplace, use your kind of knowledge of strategy to, to look around you and learn about the organization, how good its strategy uh, is or isn't, because that'll be useful to, to you in the future. But I wouldn't I wouldn't spend too long worrying about these things and their direct impact on your career. And one of one of the things that many people have heard me talk about is is feeling comfortable in the place that you join. Because if you feel comfortable, you'll be happy. If you're happy, you'll do really well. And that's all you really need to worry about. Really well said, Chris. We'll leave it there for this week. For the final story this week, we're going to have a bit of fun with this and we're going to look at advertising blunders in business, which I feel are surprisingly common, um, but maybe it's just because uh, when they happen, they get lots of publicity. And I think the example that uh, happened recently uh, was one of the co-founders of BrewDog uh, was made to pay out just under half a, half a million pounds um, after advertising gold cans or suggesting that that people could enter a competition and win gold cans like solid gold cans and actually they turned out to be gold plated so they were meant to have a value of you know many thousands and because they were gold plated uh, they didn't quite have the value he was sued um but i guess my question is around this sort of stuff and we've seen numerous examples but these companies especially big companies they have pr people they have comms people they have advertising teams they often hire agencies as well to help it why do we see so many kind of blunders or mistakes whether it be little spelling errors or even some a bit more serious that people have been culturally insensitive or companies have been culturally insensitive um why do you think we see that so much? Or do you think the media are just really looking for it and latch on to any example where a big business uh, happens to to make an error? Well, I, I think, Ben, I, I as an innocent bystander just see these things as appalling calamities. But I have a sense that you as a marketing expert smell a bit of a rat. The idea that there's no such thing as bad publicity. I mean, BrewDog has now got publicity through our podcast, which, which yeah. I was 
they wouldn't have done. So I, I, I don't know. I, I really have no idea whether they sit down and say, how can we create an appalling business development calamity and get ourselves an incredible amount of publicity as a result? I, I have no idea. I, I think so. I think there was a, a founder or a head of an energy company uh, maybe last year when energy prices were, were going up and he sent an email uh, around or his company sent an email around about the top 10 things to do to stay warm over the winter and some of them were like ludicrous like you know like do star jumps and and stuff like that and that was just like insensitive and he was on bbc news itv news whatever it might be and he apologized for it that was clearly just like an insane thing to do it just was completely tone deaf and actually really interestingly it's one of those things where businesses and politicians are classic for this but businesses as well you very rarely see them uh full-on hold their hands up and apologize chris i don't know if that's something that uh, has always been the case and maybe there's a legal reason for for doing it but it's very rare to see a, a ceo or, or or someone represented the business just to put their hands up and completely uh, apologise. I don't know what your your thoughts on that well, are. Well, the, the whole thing is is quite odd because, in a sense, uh, we are much more sensitised to the importance of the things that we do or say in, in in terms of how others will perceive them. And, and yet, when things go wrong, they seem to go completely off the rails. In ways that are unexpected. And I wonder if partly it's just a failure of decision-making. We were talking in one of the previous stories about how businesses become very big. It's very difficult to, to go against what the boss wants to do. So that in a sense, a lot of these corporate decisions, it's essentially everybody go along, going along with it or the most senior voice in the room having their say and, and no one's saying, hang on a minute, what is this about? Because in my experience, the greatest business leaders, they they spend their time asking the simplest questions, which mm. is, what would our biggest customer think if they thought we were doing this or if we said that? And and often that that simple question asking actually takes somebody with a lot of courage to to ask. So I I I don't know whether it's because the, the media is now, you know, much more pervasive or or whether it's because decision making is becoming less good i've no idea it's it's quite an interesting one but i i do think there is at the moment it's harder to get cut through you'll know this because you have phones you go on instagram you go on uh, other social media platforms the internet there are so many companies so many individuals now even through influencers trying to influence you trying to get you to buy something um, so getting cut through as a business is is quite tricky and then it comes to this idea that potentially to get cut through possibly even looking like you're making errors or even responding to particular errors uh in a way possibly could make your brand stand out and the example of this, and I don't know whether I'm paying him too much credit for this, is that, and a lot of people think this as well, is that Elon Musk uh, brought out a new Cybertruck, a Tesla Cybertruck, and he tested or showed a demo of it being bulletproof by throwing a brick at the window and the, the he threw the brick and the glass uh, cracked and it, it, it smashed. And the amount of publicity he got was just off the charts and it kind of made me think as like 
if he threw the brick at it and it didn't smash like it should have done, it's bulletproof, he wouldn't have got that much publicity. So either he has just got incredibly lucky and luck is a great, a great skill in business, don't get me wrong, or alternatively, he has uh, he's orchestrated that going, well, actually, you know what? The key Tesla uh, customers will accept that I'm going to fix it. And actually, everyone that doesn't like Tesla or doesn't like me will start tweeting about it, start sort of putting it all over social media, saying, oh, look at this guy, look at what an idiot he is. But ultimately, he's getting people to talk about him. And of course, the, the creation of Post-its, I'm sorry if this sounds hackneyed and everybody's heard about it, mm. because 3M, the company that, that makes Post-its, it was, it was in, in the business of making adhesive tape. And some of its R&D scientists were trying to create a really, really strong glue. And they actually created the opposite. They created a really, really weak glue. And everybody thought, well, that was pretty rubbish. And then... Within the R&D department, they started leaving little notes for each other on bits of paper that had this really weak glue on the back so you could pull a bit of paper off. And after about three to six months, other people within 3M said, could we have some of those those kind of really bad glue notes because they're quite useful for putting things on bits of paper, making a note, and then being able to pull it off. And that became the post-it. So going back to one of the things we've been touching on throughout the episode, the role of innovation, this was a brilliant product that was, in fact, the result of a complete mistake. Not only a mistake, but something that had gone really very badly wrong indeed. Yeah, I think that is a classic story. I really like that story as well, because um, even today in the digital age, post-it notes are very much part of the the stationery in any office or any any desk or university uh, bedroom. I'm sure people make notes on little post-its uh, now as well. Um, but yeah, I think to kind of cover this off and finalise this story, it's like we're just talking through interesting thoughts about kind of the, the world of marketing advertising um, as well. But I think the one shift and one thing that I kind of want to highlight that a few years back um, Guinness were the first company in the UK specifically that started spending multi-millions on highly cinematic kind of adverts and these big budget adverts don't always work necessarily anymore for the kind of modern age and we've kind of gone to this point where you're looking for this authentic self utilizing influencers and uh, other kind of social media channels to to be kind of authentic like uh aldi we've talked about aldi before but aldi's social media team um uh having like fun with uh calling the caterpillar and a few other bits and pieces that's kind of uh how advertising is done really well marketing is done really well now and i think if you are going into those roles um as i say i think it's a time that thinking outside the box and things can go wrong errors will get made and i think the one thing is we talk about these in these high profile business businesses errors getting picked up in the media um but you know sometimes it is worth taking the risks um and also if you've got a very good comms pr team uh, if you do make an error hopefully it could be turned into an advantage for the business perfect i think we'll leave it there for this time What a wonderful episode. Hope you got loads out of it and lots that you can take into future interviews and just your understanding of the commercial world. Make sure you head to LinkedIn and Instagram, Thinking Commercially, where you can find lots more stuff around the episode. And until next time, have a good month.